your Bibles once again and open them to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. The Old Testament. I do hope that all of you were able to find that just a minute ago. Uh, Ruth is one of those wonderful little books that we find in the Bible just after the book of Judges, just before 1 Samuel. It's one of only two books that are named after women. Esther is the, is the other one. And this is really one of the Bible's little gems. I believe it was two years ago that on Mother's Day that I learned my lesson about preaching on Mother's Day. And we were at that time going through our study in the Gospel of John. And I decided that I, I wouldn't bring a special message on Mother's Day. I wasn't going to talk about mothers on that day. And we would just continue with the study that we had in John. Well, that was probably one of the worst decisions that I ever made as a pastor. So I learned that you need to say something about Mother's Day on Mother's Day. So we're going to do that today. We're leaving our study of the Gospel of Matthew to look into this little book and this story that we have of Ruth and Naomi. Now, this little book of Ruth, as I said, is just a wonderful book. It's a story that has much more to it than meets the eye for most people. Lots of people read through the book of Ruth and they really don't particularly understand what's going on here. It's a great love story. It's a a very romantic story. It's also a story, though, that points to redemption. It tells something about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, actually, and about being redeemed. But I'm not actually going to focus on those things. I'm not going to focus on the romance part of the story today. I'm not even going to talk about redemption in particular But I want to speak to you today about a believing mother, a mother who walked away from the will of God. And I also want to talk to you about a a very bad testimony that she had. And I want to speak to you about a daughter-in-law that was at first an unbeliever, but by the grace of God, she was led to the true God of Israel. Now, we read this entire chapter just a moment ago, and we're not going to read all of it again, but I want us to look at the first five verses. We'll read that, and then I'll introduce you to the characters in this story. Let's stand, please, one more time, if you would, and let's look at Ruth chapter 1, and we'll read the first five verses. Now, it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. A certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth, and they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Kilion died also, both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again we come to you. We're so thankful for those who are here today to uh, celebrate Mother's Day and to think about our mothers and what they mean to us. And Lord, do we have a story today that maybe in some ways is not too uplifting to people. It's a story of tragedy, and we need to look at this and see the causes of it, and then also, Lord, to compare our lives to it to make sure that we don't run into the very same mistakes. Bless in this message today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
the beginning of this story is a very sad one indeed because it speaks of a family that was blessed to be a part of the people of God, blessed to be a part of Israel. Now, Israel was the only people in all the world that had God's favor. And yet with that favor, we find a family here that turned away from the blessings of God into unfaithfulness, and it produced a very tragic time in their lives. Father in this story made a very bad decision for his family, and the results of that bad decision were catastrophic. Now, let me add just as a side note to here, I realize that we're talking about mothers today, and this is Mother's Day, but I would just want to make a note to you fathers, you husbands, because you are the ones who are the spiritual head of your family. The husband is the one who's held accountable to God. He's the spiritual head, and that means that fathers need to be very godly men. So men of this church, you need to be godly men because your decisions are going to affect the welfare of your family. Now, this man, Elimelech, made a very bad choice And he decided that he was going to take his family out of God's appointed place. He would take them away from where God wanted them. And instead of trusting God to take care of him and his family, and remember there was a famine in the land, that's why they left, but rather than trusting God to take care of them, he trusted his own wisdom. He didn't consult God. And so we don't have a record here of any prayer There's no record of any agonizing with God over the situation, no asking God what to do for himself and for his family. And so instead, because of this famine, he decided that he would leave Israel, he would go into another place, into a worldly place, where he thought that he could better pursue his fortune. Now, if I could liken this to the time that we're facing today, here was a man who left where he could serve God to go into a place where he thought that the job market was better, that the economy was more robust, and it wasn't the place where God wanted him to be. Now, this, this decision of Elimelech, as I said, had profound consequences for his family, bad repercussions, because what he decided to do was to go into the land of Moab. And Moab was a place of the traditional enemies of God. The the Moabites were against God's people. And in the time of the judges that we're speaking about here, they were constant oppressors of God's people. Now, some of you that have studied Bible history and have done some reading in the Old Testament, you may realize or remember that Moab got its start, this country of Moab, in a very terrible way because the people of Moab actually came from the incestuous relationship between Lot and his two daughters when they left Sodom and Gomorrah. It was this country of Moab that refused to let Israel pass through when they were on their way to possess the promised land. It was this people that tried even to curse the people of God. And so it was a very wicked place where Elimelech decided to take his family. And again, it was a tragic decision because it wasn't long after his family arrived there that Elimelech died and then his two sons that were left behind, they took wives of the Moabite women. And these were people that were worshipers of a false god. And after 10 years in that country, we find that Elimelech's life was gone and then also the life of his two sons. So that left Mrs. Elimelech without a husband. She didn't have her two sons any longer. 
And what she had left were these two daughters-in-law that were from this heathen, idolatrous country of Moab. So that sort of sets the stage for us. And the story uh, picks up from this point with Naomi and her two daughters-in-law who are named Ruth and Orpah. Now, first, I want to talk to you today about Naomi's collapse. Now, we began the story with Elimelech's decision to leave Bethlehem. And what I don't see here is any protest from Naomi. I don't see in the story a godly mother who advised her husband against making this move. I don't see a a mother who counseled her sons correctly that they shouldn't marry outside of their faith. I don't see a mother here who, even after tragic consequences of unfaithfulness, that immediately she decided to do what God would have her to do to return to Israel to the place that she never should have left. As we read the story, we see that it wasn't until she found out that there was bread in Israel that she decided to go back. And so we can say that the choice that she made was not really a spiritual decision. She wasn't really thinking about the will of God and what God wanted her to do. Instead, the decision was still based upon economy. It was still based upon worldly things. In fact, it was based upon her belly. She felt simply that she could be better fed back in Israel than she could in Moab. Now, I think it's good for us then to investigate this just a little to see the cause of her collapse. What did she do wrongly? Well, I think first that we can say she left God's place. Israel was God's place. Israel was the place of God's blessing. This was the place that was the land of inheritance. And God said, when I bring you into this land, I promise you that I'm going to shelter you. I promise I will keep you. I promise you I will protect you. And God said, I'll watch over you. This is the place that I have for you. And in each trial where God's people failed in Israel, we always see that it's a result of unfaithfulness. It was distrust in the providence of God to do exactly what God said that he would do. And so we see that in the problem of Israel, when they were on their way journeying to Canaan, how many times do we read that they murmured against God? It wasn't long after they'd left Egypt that they were at the Red Sea and they were faced with crossing that Red Sea and, and Pharaoh's army bearing down behind them. And they began to murmur and complain and they thought, well, has God brought us into the wilderness simply to kill us here? Are we going to die at the hand of Pharaoh's army? Then shortly after that, it was a crisis for water and they thought that they would die of thirst. After that, they were hungry, a crisis of food, and so they thought that they were going to die of starvation. And then there was that crisis of the spies. Uh, They brought back that evil report of the land, and they said that the people who live in Canaan are too powerful for us. There are giants that live there. There There are fortified cities there. We can't conquer this land. And each of those was a crisis of unbelief, but in each one of them we find that God was able to provide. He parted the Red Sea. He gave them water out of the rock. He sent them the quail and the manna. And it was God who even caused the walls of that fortified city of Jericho to fall down flat. And so we see the failures that were there were never God's failures. They were always the failure of the people not to trust God properly and not to be obediently faithful to all that God said they were to do. Now I want to advise you mothers today that there is also many times a crisis of unbelief among people that are born again. 
Your unbelief sometimes says that you need to dress your daughters like the world because they'll not be popular. They won't attract the boys if you don't do it that way. There's a crisis of unbelief today with mothers when it comes to disciplining children. And instead of doing it according to the godly plan, we have the idea that, well, spanking a child, that's not right, that's cruel. We ought not to do that. There's a crisis of unbelief when you don't demand separation for your family. When you let your kids go where they want to go and just do whatever they want to do. And you've decided that you want to be the parent who is going to be their friend rather than the one who has the responsibility of molding and shaping their values. There's a crisis of unbelief when you take your sons and your daughters out of church and you take them to pursue other kinds of activities like sports or education or other things that you think it's going to give them a leg up in life and that's the thing that will make them successful. And what we actually have here in this story is a pointed, vivid reminder of what happens when you start to turn your family over to the world and you leave the place where God would have them. It puts you on a path to disaster. And I'll tell you this, that where your children end up spiritually is far more important than where they will end up socially, educationally, and economically. And so we find that we come to another crisis, and that is a crisis of children leaving the church. When they turn 18 and they leave the home, then they leave the faith, they leave the church as well. It happens all over this country. And why is it? I mean, why does that happen? Well, I think it's because of the way that parents have approached their lives spiritually. We've decided that we're going to put secular things in front of spiritual things, and we begin to teach our children that God is second place in our lives. And many times, God is a far distant second place. And you'll find this to be true, that when you provide a bad example for your children, good results rarely come out of bad examples. It's awfully quiet today. So Naomi left God's place. Now, also we see that she left God's plan. God's plan is a plan of separation. Uh, Naomi was in a place of separation in Bethlehem, and so what she did was she abandoned that to go to Moab. God's plan was that his people would be different from the world. If you read this in the Old Testament, you find all these things that God had his people do. There were things like dietary laws. I mean, there were things like even mixing and matching your clothing. What was that all about? Well, it was God telling his people that they were to be separate. It was to produce a different kind of people. I think it's quite odd that in the church growth movement today, it's all about joining the culture rather than separating from it. The seeker-sensitive movement is all about cultural acceptance rather than separation. Now you have churches that want to break down all the barriers that make God's people act or look any differently from the people of the world. And so you have churches today that have become entertainment centers. You have churches that are like, have this nightclub-like atmosphere. You have a band that plays. You have drinks that are served. You have skits that are put on in their plays. And what do they tout in all these advertisements and commercials that they put on television? They'll tell you we are culturally relevant. Let me tell you what Jesus' idea of cultural relevance is. His idea is that all men are wicked and vile sinners. They're desperately wicked, and both they and their culture are depraved. 
The culture is going to lead people straight into hell to suffer the eternal damnation of God. And so Jesus said to people, if you don't repent of this, you're going to perish. Let me tell you something, folks. Jesus is trying to save us out of this culture. He wants to deliver us from this culture, not to put us squarely into the middle of it. So God wants to save us out of all this wickedness, and he doesn't want us to make sinners comfortable in this world of wickedness. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. He said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. And what Jesus is trying to say here, and what I learned from this, that the way to eternal life is not through the culture. Everybody is in the culture. And Jesus says that they're on the broad path to destruction. And so what we seek to do is to get people off of that broad path and get them into the narrow way. And in fact, it's a way so narrow that you can't get through the turnstiles with all of your baggage. You can't get on that path until you past or put all those sins uh, to, of your past behind you and forget about all this cultural relevance. You have to shed it all. And so, mothers, that's what you have to do. You have to get your family doing this. Get them back to God. Shelter your family from the world. Keep them in church. Keep them in God's place. Because to do other than that is just a court disaster. There's a collapse that's coming for your family. It will leave your family destitute just like it did Naomi. Now, I want to move on from that because despite our failures, God is still gracious. God just often does the totally unexpected. Naomi was still one of God's children, and though she was disobedient and unfaithful, yet God remains faithful. There was tragedy in the family, but we also find here that there is a bright spot. There's a bright spot in all of this that really changes everything. So next we look at Ruth's conversion. Ruth is one of those Moabite women that married one of Naomi's sons. Ruth was from a cursed people. She was from an idolatrous family. The other daughter-in-law, Orpah, was the same. She was also from this cursed people, and she was much like Ruth, although in some ways she was quite different. I don't know if you've heard this little piece of trivia, but I read that uh, Oprah Winfrey's mother intended, and it's a true story, intended to name her after Orpah, this Bible character. And there was a mix-up on the uh, birth certificate, and they misspelled the name, and so her name came out Ophrah instead of Orpah. I thought maybe it might be better Orca or something like that, but it came out as Oprah. But there's a puzzling piece, though, to this story, and it just shows you what can happen to the child of God when he gets out of the will of God. When Naomi decided that she was going to go back to Bethlehem, these two daughters that were still bereaved of their husbands and they were still a part of the family, they decided that they would go with Naomi back to Israel. But instead of encouraging these two young women to go with her, To go to a place where she could find salvation from the Lord, Naomi actually discouraged these two daughters-in-law. She said, you stay behind. And what Naomi was doing, she was still thinking about the physical well-being. She was still thinking about the economy and how they would fare better in the world if they just simply stayed right there in Moab. 
Now, if you look at verse number 8, it says, And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you, as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. What did she mean when she said, The Lord deal kindly with you? How is the Lord going to deal kindly with them by leaving them in Moab? I mean, Moab is a place of idolatry. Moab is the place where God chastised her family. Her husband died. Her sons died because they lived in Moab. And here we find Naomi telling these two young daughters, stay there. Don't just, it'll be better for you if you stay right where you are. And if you look up there in the 15th verse, you'll even find there that Naomi tells them to return to their gods. And you know, we see the same kinds of things among Christian people today, they become very insensitive about people who are dying and going to hell. I mean, we act as if there is no real consequence to unbelief. And so when our children marry unbelievers, we just leave them alone. We don't want to interfere with them. If they bring home unsaved friends, we don't say anything. We don't want to make their unsaved friends to be uncomfortable in our house. Friends, people without the gospel die and go to hell. Don't be insensitive to the need of salvation. Now, let's look here, because despite Ruth's insistence that she stay among false worshipers, or Naomi's, rather, uh, Ruth was determined that she would go. And we find a wonderful testimony from her about this conversion in, in, in the 16th and 17th verses. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. Now here we see that Ruth was changing economically. She was changing socially, and she was changing spiritually. And the change that she was about to make would cost her something. There's no easy path that's cut out for her. And isn't there a lesson in this? I mean, preachers today are telling you that Jesus wants to make you happy. Jesus is only interested that you have fun. Jesus wants you to be prosperous in this life. Nobody's saying that Jesus really promotes hardship. So what does she have to do? If she's going to go to Israel, if her statement truly is that your God is going to be my God, your people are going to be my people, what must she do? Well, she has to leave her prosperity. She has to leave that behind. Moab must stay behind. Now, maybe she doesn't look too prosperous. She, she'd lost her husband. But returning to Moab was actually the safe thing for her to do. There was a home for her in Moab. Her husband's family was in Moab. Her family, I should say, was in Moab. And so she had a reason to stay there. Going to Israel was not the best thing for her to do as far as the world would look at it because there's no guarantee she's going to have a home in Israel. There's no guarantee she can find another husband. And so in order to come to the God of Israel, she has to leave her prosperity. And I find that that is an amazing thing about the theology that's coming out of our churches today. People are not saying you have to leave prosperity in order to come to Christ. Instead, they're saying you will materially prosper. In fact, if you come to Christ, you'll find prosperity, and you can even demand prosperity from him. But wasn't Jesus the one who said, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. There is no promise of material prosperity with Christ. Now, contrary to... 
the Joel Osteens and the Joyce Myers and all the Word of Faith people, Jesus is not really interested in your prosperity. Worldly riches and favors are not a part of Christ's agenda. In fact, if you come to the Lord looking for those things and that's what you expect, you might as well pack up your bags and leave because that's not what Christ promises. If it were then Jesus would never have told the rich young ruler that he must leave his riches behind. He must leave the love of those riches. Jesus said, you have to do that before you can be my follower. He wouldn't have told him to sell all that he had. Discipleship has a cost to it, and Ruth was willing to pay that cost. Now, most people would look at me and they'd say, well, pastor, that's not the way that you convince people to become Christians. Don't talk to them like that. I mean, if you speak of anything that's other than fun and games when you become a Christian, people are not going to want to be Christians. I've got news for you. There's nobody who wants to be a Christian anyway. You don't wake up in the morning and say, hey, I think I'm going to get saved today. So you see, if cost alone, if that's the determining factor about whether people are going to come to Christ, then they'll never come. No one wants to change from where they're the center of everything to where they're the center of nothing. Nobody wants to change from serving self to serving Christ, and yet that is exactly what Christ demands. You have to leave the temporal prosperity to focus on eternal prosperity. And the only way that happens for any person is when God changes the heart. That's the only time that a person desires to become a Christian. So she must leave her prosperity, but also she has to leave her people. See, when she left Israel, she was going to be a foreigner. When she left Moab, brethren, and goes to Israel, she's going to be a foreigner. When she gets there, uh, uh, she's a heathen. She's in a foreign land. The people of Israel are different altogether. And friends, when you come to Christ, you have to leave the friendship and the citizenship of this world behind. It's what Paul said in Philippians 3, verse 20. He said, for our conversation, and that means citizenship there. Our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What does Hebrews say about Abraham, that that righteous man, the man made righteous by his faith? It says, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed and went out, not knowing whether he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles, that means tents, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Jesus said that when you come to him, it will put some strains on your family relationships. Now, I'm often asked by people when they're ready to come to Christ, They'll say, well, what do I do about my family? What do I do about them? I mean, they're going to be very upset if I leave Catholicism. They're going to be very upset, and they're going to disown me if I decide that I'm going to believe in Christ alone. And my words of advice are expected. You might as well expect it because that's what Jesus said would happen. In Matthew chapter 10, he said, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. 
Following Christ is not easy. And so there are many people who say, well, don't worry about what Jesus says here. Don't worry about that because what you really need to do is just one simple thing. You just need to pray a prayer. Just pray a prayer to be saved and then you can go back and you can go back into that old lifestyle that you live into before. Nothing really needs to change. I beg to disagree with that. Unless you are ready to follow Christ bearing any and all cross cost, then you are not ready to be his disciple. And the translation of that is, as Jesus speaks, that you are not ready to be saved. You're not ready to be his followers. You can't be in his kingdom unless you're willing to give all that up. So you can't stay in Moab and say, thy people shall be my people and thy God my God. It doesn't work that way. So Ruth made a confession of Christ, and from that point on, things were different. When that confession is made, there comes an uptick in the story. And let me just say this to you, that that the joy of motherhood has to be this. It has to be when a child, you're a mother. The joy of motherhood is when a child comes to Christ in faith, when a grandchild comes to faith. You know, as I uh, uh, think about being a father, I was happy to see my daughter graduate from law school. I was happy to see my other daughter graduate from nursing school. I'm proud that soon my my son will graduate from college. But there's nothing that matches a child or a grandchild coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing matches the joy of seeing that child go into the waters of baptism over here and then begin to live a life of following Christ. Nothing matches seeing an eight-year-old boy like Alexander Brown right over there. I'm glad he's in the, in, the, in the services this morning. Nothing matches seeing a young man like that go into the waters of baptism on one Sunday night and the next Sunday night playing an offertory before the church. That's what we're in this for. I mean, that's what we're teaching our children to do. That's what we desire. With all of our hearts, we ought to say, come what may, as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. Now, I need to hurry on here because you're probably wondering about the title of this message. I'm almost through, and I haven't even yet got to the premise of the message. But we're getting to that. So what is the third thing? Well, the third thing is Bethlehem's comfort. Naomi's collapse, Ruth's conversion, and now we come to Bethlehem's comfort. Bethlehem is comfort because Bethlehem represents coming home to God. The name Bethlehem actually means house of bread. And so Bethlehem is where this mother and daughter have their banquet. In verse 19 it says, So they too went until they came to Bethlehem. Now what does Bethlehem represent to Naomi and Ruth? Well, Naomi left there, and when she returned from that bitter backsliding, here's what she says. We find it in verse 20. She says, Call me not Naomi. And the word Naomi, the name Naomi means pleasant. She says, Call me not Naomi. Call me not pleasant. Call me Mara. That means bitter. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Call me Mara, call me bitter. That's what the children of Israel called those bitter waters that they came to that they couldn't drink in their journey on the way to the promised land. They were bitter waters. So Naomi left high. She came back low. But she realized what she'd done. And coming back to Bethlehem actually became sweetness to her. And why was it so sweet? Well, because Bethlehem is where God is present. Was God in Moab? Well, certainly God was in Moab. God's everywhere. 
But have you ever noticed that when you're outside of God's will that it seems that you can't find God? How is it that God can be everywhere and you can't find him? God has a way of veiling himself to the impenitent. There's nothing that can be as miserable and as unhappy as a child of God who's not walking in the will of God. There's nothing like a Christian being out of fellowship with God. Now, maybe there's some Christian here today and you no longer have power with God. You don't have the communion that you want to have with God. You can't pray because it seems that God never answers. God doesn't even seem to hear you. You can't feel the presence of God. Now, David, who is from Bethlehem, the city, Bethlehem is called the city of David, and he was one who most vividly set forth the absence of God in his life when he sinned. And he said, Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Now, right there is the secret of comfort. It's to forsake sin and to come back to God because God's arms are always ready to receive. Now, Ruth also found God's presence. She stayed on the journey. She counted the cost, and she decided that she was going to stick with it. So she was willing to go, and she followed Naomi all the way to Israel. And what happened to her? She was rewarded for her faith immeasurably. How? Because Bethlehem is where God provides. So what did they need? They needed food. What did they need? They need God back in their lives. Naomi needed her power back in Ruth needed to see the reward of her faith in Christ, and she needed to see that what God promises, God always provides. See, when you come to Christ and you're hungering and thirsting for him, he never sends you away empty. He always fills you. Jesus said, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And so in Bethlehem, there was this spiritual banquet with the mother and her daughter-in-law. David said in Psalm 23, He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He said, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Did God provide? Was there really joy in the Lord when they went to Israel? I mean, was satisfaction really found there? Leaving all behind, forsaking all the prosperity of the world, getting back with God. Is there really joy there? Is there something that can be felt when you do that? Well, here we find that this idolatrous woman, a Moabitess, one who was against God, one from a heathen country, one who was undeserving of the mercy of God, and a backslider who was unfaithful, who went out from the Lord, found compassion when she came back. And so both of them were filled with the joy of the Lord. So what is the end of the story? Well, Ruth found a husband in Israel, but he wasn't just any husband. Ruth found a good man. She found a righteous man. She found a blessed man. She found a righteous man. In fact, when she came to the Lord, she found that things were far better than she could ever imagine that they would be in Moab. God blessed her immensely. And this great God, with his great love wherewith he loved us, also did something else for her. I want you to turn over to chapter 4 for just a moment, verse number 21. Here we find what God did for Ruth. And really, this is the point of redemption in the story. In chapter 4, verse number 21, And Salmon 
begat Boaz, and Boaz begat Obed, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. Ruth married Boaz, and they had a son. Then it goes on, it says, and Jesse begat David. So Ruth was the great-grandmother of David. That was Israel's greatest king. And so actually that also means that God chose Ruth to bring Jesus into the world. Ruth was responsible for bringing the king of kings into the world. The Apostle Paul said, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So Bethlehem's comfort was really a mother-daughter banquet beyond compare. Now, mothers, today I want to ask you, are you full or are you empty? Are you bitter or are you sweet? Examine your life. And really all of us need to do this, and we need to ask ourselves, are we in the place where God wants us to be? Are we doing what God really wants us to do? Are we really raising our families as God would have us to? Are we really teaching them the truths of the Word? Are we concerned about their spiritual welfare? Or are we putting all of our eggs in the basket of where they are educationally, where they are economically? And we don't even think at all about where are my children spiritually? How will they be raised? Will they know the Lord? Will they worship the Lord? Will my house be a place that's a refuge from the world? So there may be a crisis of unbelief in your life. And what do we learn from this story is that God's always faithful. We, we become unfaithful. There's a story here of unfaithfulness, but the failure is always on our part. It will never be on God's part. And so we just trust God to do what he would have us to do. So a mother can make all the difference in the world. She makes all the difference in the world about how her children turn out. The question is, mothers, what kind of difference are you making? What kind of difference are you really making in the lives of your children? And that's an important consideration for every single mother in this room today. What kind of difference are you making? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Fathers, we come to you again in the end of this message. We've seen great tragedy. We see what happens when the people of God get out of the will of God, when we decide that things of this world are more alluring than the spiritual blessings, than all the things that can be ours by trusting you implicitly for all things. I ask you, Lord, that you would speak to the hearts of mothers and also of fathers here today, that each one would be very, very much concerned about where they're leading their children, what they're doing, what their spiritual lives are like, because that is the most important thing that ever comes out of this life. As children of God, we're left here for only one purpose, and that is that we might glorify Jesus Christ and bring others to the saving knowledge of him. All other things that are in this world are beside it, beside that point. And that's what we need to focus on. Is that where we put our lives focus? Lord, bless our people today, and I pray for salvation of those who don't know you as Savior. May your Holy Spirit open their hearts to the gospel of Christ. I pray for mothers and fathers who may be walking contrary to your will. I just pray, Lord, you'd bring them back, even as Naomi came back, and there they will find a banquet, a 
find all things are ready. A feast is prepared when we come back into the presence of God. So blessed today in this invitation time. We pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who has questions about salvation, about baptism, needs someone to pray with, anything going on in their lives, we have people available to help right at the end of the service. We ask you, Lord, for your blessing and for your care. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.